Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you all here today. Thank you for that wonderful music. Uh, I always love hearing Christmas songs at this time of the year. And what a joy it is to be here with you all and share God's Word. And last week we finished up our our six-part teaching on the church, and we hope that that was a blessing and informative to help you understand us better about our four pillars and how God has structured His church. It is His church, and our Lord Jesus is the head. We are the body. And so today we will begin to look at Christmas. Christmas is just a week away, and so for the next two weeks we'll be celebrating the joy of Christmas. And the joy of Christmas, it all started with the hope of Christmas. And the hope of Christmas. And that's the title of today's message, The Hope of Christmas. And the reason there is a hope is because there was a need for Christmas. Why did we need that Christmas morning over 2,000 years ago? And how does Christmas affect us? Well, this is what we'll be looking at today. And to find the answers to those questions, we, we really need to go back to the beginning all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. So when we wonder why the world seems so dark and falling apart, we look to the book of Genesis and we find the answer. Something happened that changed everything. But that's also that God had a plan to fix what happened. And so in the realm of human history, there came an event that was so wonderful and so amazing that mankind began to refer to the years as B.C. or A.D. Though the first advent of our Lord Jesus was something so hoped for and so amazing that we we begin to date the the years with the B.C. before Bethlehem. And then we looked back and celebrated what what Christ did on Calvary and they, they dated it A.D. I don't think they still do it today, but... They used to do it that way. I think there's new ways of dating now. But it was such a great, amazing event that mankind began to do that. 16 B.C., things like that. The hope of Christmas. And it's amazing that so many people celebrate Christmas every year and they really don't understand what it's all about. That most people miss it because Christmas has become so overshadowed with all the stuff. When we think about it the, this time of year, Christmas does get incredibly busy. It gets muddled up with all the stress and the pressure. <clears throat> I mean, we start seeing Christmas commercials earlier and earlier every year. I think this year I caught some right after Labor Day. So we forget about how important Christmas morning really was all those 2,000 years ago. In fact, it was the most important morning ever in humankind. Why? Well, that's because that's what we'll look at today. And so let's go back to the why and, and what happened with that baby that needed to be born in Bethlehem. And it's not just any baby, but the most amazing baby ever. So if you have your Bibles, I, Bibles, I invite you to grab it and turn with me to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, today we'll see the hope of Christmas. And there's so much going on and around Christmas that sometimes, again, we can miss the blessing of Christmas. That when we peel back all the stuff that has been piled on top of Christmas, like you know, Santa and reindeer and cookies and candy canes and shopping and traveling, but when we get to the heart of it, 
we can see just how amazing that morning was those 2,000 years ago. So Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 8 through 15. The hope of Christmas. Genesis chapter 3 and verses 8 through 15, and I'll be reading again from the Legacy Standard Bible. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. And God's Word reads, Then they heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And there is the reading of God's Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word because it's through Your Word where we learn more about You. And Father, we pray that You open our eyes this morning. Have Your Spirit be our teacher this morning. Help us see the amazing need and hope of Christmas. And Father, forgive me my shortcomings and preach a better message than I have prepared. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one week from today is Christmas morning. But why do we need Christmas morning? Why that baby born in Bethlehem? Well, if we condense it down to the bare bone, it would be this. Bethlehem had to happen so Calvary could happen. Our Lord Jesus was born to die. But why? Well, today as we walk through Genesis chapter 3 and verses 8 through 15, we'll see two truths. First, in verses 8 through 13, we'll see the disobedience. The disobedience. And then second in verses 14 and 15, we see the promise. The promise. The hope of Christmas. The disobedience caused the need in which God in His mercy then gave a promise. He gave a promise. Why do we need Christmas morning 2,000 years ago? Well, let's dive into God's holy word and find out. First, the disobedience. Verses 8 through 13. And what we're going to see when we look at these verses are... Just what, sin, just what sin does to the human heart. So verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. So, here we see the result of sin entering into the world. And what happened to Adam and Eve. And the results here of sin are fear and shame. God had created a perfect world and then created man to have dominion over it. And God had a perfect relationship with man, Adam, and they were in close fellowship. And then God gave Adam a helpmate, a woman, Eve, to be his wife, to love him and help him. And they lived in a perfect world. So what happened? 
Well, out of all the trees that were placed in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam that one, just one, he couldn't eat from. God told Adam not to eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And really, God did, did it to protect Adam from evil, to keep him innocent. God didn't want Adam to know evil because God knew it would pollute his mind and heart. God wanted to keep Adam innocent. So we need to ask the big question here. Then why did God put this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the garden in the first place? If God wanted to keep Adam innocent, why did He even put that tree in the garden? Well, Adam and also Eve were not God's robots. And they were not programmed only to love God or do what God told them to do. They, were t they had the freedom to do what they wanted to do. But remember, they lived in a perfect world and they knew only good. So even though they had this freedom, they had no reason to go against God. And so what God does then is He puts this one tree in the middle of the garden to test them to see if they would obey Him. We don't know how many trees were in the garden that they could eat off of, but it sounds like quite a few. And so out of all these trees that Adam could eat from, God puts just one in the middle and tells him, don't eat from this one. And so Adam now has a choice. And this is important because we know that, that love is not love without a choice. The word love. God is love. It's, his, it's one of His main attributes. And it's what God wants from us. You know, John MacArthur once said that if we boil, it, boil down to what God wants from us, it is to love the Lord your God so much that we, you would walk in all of His ways, that you would serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that you would keep His commandments and His statutes which He commands you. So loving the Lord your God is, is a matter of obedience. It's, it's seeing the wrong thing, but caring enough about someone to do the right thing. Obedience to obey or not to obey God. And really, and really we don't like that word obey. We don't like to obey. We, we want to be free. We think freedom is being free from obeying anyone or anything. But really, here's the truth. Every person on planet earth right now lives a life of obedience. We're either living a life of obedience to sin or we're living a life of obedience to Christ. Every person alive right now is living a life of obedience. It's just a question of who's your master. Who has the authority over you to demand obedience from you? And what that means is that everyone who's not saved, who's not born again, sin is their master and they will obey their master. They have no choice but to obey and sin. But for those who are saved, those who are born again, sin is now no longer their master. No, now the Lord Jesus Christ is their master. Which means there's now a new life of obedience to our Lord Jesus. And for the first time ever in their lives, they can now now free to choose to obey Him or not to obey Him. And so the big question then is, who do we love more, our Lord Jesus or our sin? And this is the choice Adam had to make. And it all started in the garden. This is what God desires from Adam and Eve. God wants Adam and Eve to love and obey Him, but not out of fear, but out of love. And so He places the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And he tells Adam, you can eat from all of these, but not this one. And really, when we think about it, 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 it couldn't have been much easier for Adam not to eat from the tree. So even in a perfect world, in a beautiful garden, full of trees to eat, 
But yet Adam failed the test. And God wasn't trying to trick him. There was, there was nothing hidden. It was just one command, not to eat from this one tree. Remember, everything that God had made was good and only good, and so there was nothing evil about this tree other than eating from it. That would be bad because eating from it would produce the knowledge of evil. And all Adam had known up to this time was good. He, he didn't know anything but good. So why did God place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden and tell Adam not to eat of it? Well, it was a test. Who do you love more? Who will you obey? And Adam had no reason not to obey God and fail this test because he had everything. He had everything. Adam had no reason to disobey God. He had no reason to doubt God's Word. He had no reason to resent God's sovereignty. He was in perfect harmony with Yahweh God. But he was free to obey or not to obey God. And God wants Adam to obey him out of love. And so now, here comes Satan. And he comes to the garden with a purpose. Satan's purpose is he hates God. Because God has spoiled his plan of being worshipped. And so now he's been thrown down. And so now Satan's going to tempt Adam and Eve to follow him just like he did a third of the angels in heaven. Imagine that. In front of God, Satan rallies a third of the angels to go against God. It really makes us wonder just how persuasive is Satan. That right in the very presence of God, he was able in heaven to convince a third of the angels to follow him instead of God who's sitting right on his throne. And so then God throws Satan down and as Scripture tells us, the career of Satan or the devil has been steadily going down ever since. And because originally Satan was created as a perfect being without any sin, and then sometime in the past he decided to rebel against God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped like God. And then he rebelled, and this beautiful creature called Lucifer then became the devil or the adversary. And so the devil, Satan, was cast out of God's presence because of sin. And so now it appears that he does have some kind of access to God's presence, but only when the Lord allows it. But here, Satan comes to earth, and now he's using the body of a serpent, and he focuses in on Eve. He begins talking to her. But how can we be so sure that this serpent was being used by Satan? Well, that's a good question. But in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, John says in Revelation 22, he says this, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the serpent of old who was the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. The, ser the serpent of old, Satan. And that leads to another question here. <laughs> Why did God allow Satan to enter into the garden? Well again, love is not love without a choice. And God is testing Adam and Eve to see if they will obey him out of love. If they love him, they'll want to obey him. To do what he's told them to do. And both Adam and Eve have the freedom to choose or not to choose. Remember, this is before sin entered into the picture again. So both Adam and Eve had the freedom to make that choice. We don't have that freedom to choose like that because until we become born again. Because when we're born again, we, before we're born again, we all inherit Adam's sin. So the moment we're born, all we can do is do what our heart desires, and it desires sin. And we must obey our master's sin. But here in the garden, Adam and Eve had that choice. And they can't blame God. They can't blame Satan. It was their own choice. And so here comes Satan. And he's using the body of a serpent to entice Eve, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the funny thing is <laughs> that God never told the woman Eve that she couldn't eat from that tree. 
Remember, Eve wasn't even created yet when God gave Adam the commandment. It was just to the man, Adam. He wasn't to eat. It was Adam who told Eve not to eat from that tree. But Satan comes into the garden as a serpent and he goes right to the woman, right to Eve. But we ask another question. Why did Satan go to the woman first? Why didn't Satan approach the man Adam first? Well, again, again, because Satan hates God. And so he's going after and trying to destroy the order of creation. Yahweh God is a God of order. And there's an order to everything He does. That's why He gave His command not to eat from the tree, only to Adam and not to Eve. And so through the creation order, God has given the, the male the headship responsibility. God made both the male and female equal before Him. So the male is not superior to the female, and the female is not inferior to the male. But they have different roles. Different roles in the home, different roles in the church, all by God's perfect and merciful design. And God made man the head, and then God made Eve to be a helper and a co-worshipper and learner to Adam. And God made Eve as a suitable helper to Adam, and God wanted Eve to learn by His Word, His Word by Adam. Adam the man has a leadership as the head responsibility, and Eve the woman has a helpmate and submission responsibility. And notice these roles were set in place before the fall, before Adam sinned. So God in His masterful design, He gave the man and woman different roles so that Adam and Eve were to de depend on each other. And so to help Adam, God made Eve to be equal and adequate to Adam. And Adam was made out of the ground directly by God. And his, and his intelligence level was, was off the scale. We know that because remember, He named all the animals in one day. Adam was a pretty sharp guy. But he still needs to get help from Eve. She needs to, to help Adam. And really, Adam and Eve both need each other to fulfill God's blessing. But Adam, because he was made first, and because Eve was made from Adam's side, he's the head of the relationship. So that's why Satan goes after the woman first. So what Satan's doing here is he's attacking God's creation order. He's actually mocking God. So he's addressing Eve first and not Adam. And we already know that Satan is a, he's a master persuader. Remember, a third of the angels rebelled with him. And so here, Satan deceives Eve by tempting her that your eyes will be open and you will be as God's knowing good and evil. And so Eve saw that the tree was beautiful. That's lust of the eyes. She looked at the fruit was delicious. That's lust of the flesh. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. That's the pride of life. And that's the trifecta of sin. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. And it was, with, it was with these exact three temptations that Satan used to try to get our Lord Jesus to sin. The same three ways. And to this day, this is how Satan is tempting us. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And here, Eve, here to Eve, Satan says, your eyes will be open and you will be as gods. You will know good and evil. But he left out a major truth. That yes, Eve would know good, but she wouldn't have the power to do it and yes, she would know evil, but she wouldn't have the power to avoid it. And so Satan beguiles Eve to eat from the tree which God told Adam not to eat. And then however it went down, however it happened, she got Adam to eat. And so however, however it happened, Adam having a choice to obey Yahweh God or not, Adam who walked with Yahweh God, Adam who had an intimate relationship with Yahweh God, freely ate from that tree. He failed the test. Adam had a choice. He was confronted with the wrong thing, 
but he didn't do the right thing. And so when they ate from the tree, it says their eyes were open, and then they knew they were naked. And it wasn't that Adam and Eve's body had changed, but that now their eyes saw things completely different. Adam's eyes were opened, and what he saw took away his innocence. Because now for the first time in his life, Adam could see evil. And now when he looked at the fact that both he and Eve were naked, somehow it didn't feel right. It didn't seem right that they should be this way. And so for the first time ever, Adam felt shame. Before this, Adam couldn't have, have, have done anything that would be ashamed of. He, even being naked, he wasn't ashamed because God had created him, in, him this way. He, both he and Eve were created that way. They were naked and there was no shame or guilt. But after Adam ate, he knew that he had violated a command. He, he knew he had failed. And so what Adam and Eve, what, what, what do they do after they do this terrible thing? When they eat, they, they disobey God after their eyes were opened. Well, back in verse 7, it says they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So did that do the trick? <laughs> did they, by covering themselves, fix the problem? Are they no longer ashamed? Well, we're about to find out because we already know because Yahweh comes and fellowships with them in the evening, in the cool of the day, and again, verse 8, and they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. <laughs> and so with sin, there is always consequences. And what are the consequences of sin? Well, again, we see shame. We see shame. After the sin, Adam and Eve felt dirty. They felt guilty. They felt ashamed. And what else do we see in verse 8? We see fear. Fear. So not only, not only were Adam and Eve ashamed of themselves because of their sin, but immediately they became afraid of the Lord God because of their sin. And now for the first time in Adam's life, he's ashamed and he's afraid of Yahweh God. And so they hear Yahweh God coming. And so what happens now? Verse 9. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Notice it's God who calls out to Adam. It's God who's calling the man. It's God who's the initiator. And it's because God is always the one who's the initiator. God is always the one who comes looking for us. Why? Because sinful people aren't looking for God. Sinful people are trying to stay as far away from God as they can. They're trying to hide from God. This is what Adam and Eve are doing. And so here Yahweh God comes and He calls to the man. And this word call is a strong word. In fact, this called in Hebrew means to utter a loud sound. In fact, the Hebrews use this word to explain the sound a lion makes when it roars. And so this is God calling out with a loud voice. This isn't a whisper. And notice it was to the man, not to the woman. Again, who's the one responsible for the relationship? Adam. So God calls out to the man in a loud voice, Where are you? So the question that God asks here is, it's not to gain information. It's not because God doesn't know what happened. Because God knows everything. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we have to give an account. God knows everything. Think about that. God has never learned anything. Even when we pray, it's not, it's not us updating God about our lives. 
Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verse 4, David wrote, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. God knows everything. So when Yahweh God comes and He says in a loud voice to the man, Where are you? What is God doing? Well, what God is doing here is He wants Adam to see where he is. And where is Adam? He's hiding from God. God wants Adam to look at himself and see where he is and what he's done and then confess his sin. Remember, God was testing Adam's love for him. And love is a choice. God wants Adam to look at what's happened and admit his sin. We see God's grace here. God's amazing grace because God knows what's happened. He could have just wiped Adam out and just started over, but instead He's coming and He's showing grace. He's letting what happened to Adam sink in and allow Adam to just to probe his conscience so he'll confess his sin. Adam's disobeyed God and sinned. And, and, and this sin demands an account for what he's done. And so God, so now God will give Adam the chance to confess and come clean and admit his sin. Because there's no hiding from God. There's no way to hide anything from God. Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. Numbers 32, 23 says, But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against Yahweh, and be sure your sin will find you out. Private sin on earth isn't private in heaven. Your sin will find you out. And God knows every sin that has ever been committed. We can't bury our sin. There's, there's no such thing as a little sin. God knows every sin. So God calls out to Adam, where are you? He wants Adam to look and realize where he is. And where is he? He's hiding. And really, this is what the entire human race has been doing ever since. This hiding from God. This running away from God. Again, unbelievers are not hungry for God. Unbelievers aren't doing whatever they they're doing whatever they can to hide from God. They're not doing anything they can to get towards God. Unrepented sinners will do anything but seek after the one true God. And they'll even make up their own gods so that they'll feel safe worshiping them because they can control these gods. But you know when we really think about it, unbelievers they they want what God can give them. Because everybody wants love, joy, peace and happiness, right? but they just don't want God. They want what God can give, but they don't want the giver. Unbelievers aren't looking for God. And this is where Adam finds himself. And so how will Adam respond to Yahweh God? Well, verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. <laughs> so Adam says, I heard the sound of you, and that most likely was the calling of God. And he says, I was afraid. <laughs> and yes, he was afraid. He should have been afraid. We would have been afraid too. He disobeyed God. He failed the test. And he felt guilty because he was guilty. And we can all thank God for guilt because guilt is a good thing. Why? Well, because guilt lets us know there's something wrong with our soul. Guilt is like pain to our body. It's like when you do something to your, your leg, there's pain, so you don't keep putting weight on it. The pain is telling you that you just sprained your ankle and you, you need to take care of it right away. And that's what guilt does. It tells us there's something wrong and we need to make it right. We should never feel happy in sin. And so Adam says, I was afraid. 
And this word for afraid here, it means terror struck. It means that you're so afraid that you're shaking. It's a very troubled conscience. And this word conscience, the word conscience means with knowledge. And when God made us, this in His amazing mercy, He made us with the ability to understand right and wrong. Paul said that in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. In Romans 2.15, Paul said, they demonstrate that God's law is written within them for their own conscience either accuses them or tells them that they are doing what is not right. So everyone ever born or will be born is born with a conscience to know what is right and what is wrong. So even unbelievers know what's right, but they just don't, they just don't want to do it or they can't do it. And that's what, that's what they're doing when they're hiding from God. But deep down inside, they know something's not right. I mean, right? The world tries to, tries to drown out that feeling. <laughs> they, they try to drown it out with the stuff of the world, with pleasure and drugs and alcohol. They try to justify it because everyone else is doing it, so maybe it's not that bad. But here, Adam knows he's done wrong and he's terrified of Yahweh God. And for an unbeliever, what's the most terrifying thing that could ever happen to them? because of their sin. It's to stand before a holy God. And here we see Adam. He's terrified in his guilt because of his sin. And really, God was the last person he wanted to see. God wasn't looking for God. Adam wasn't looking for God. And so Adam, his conscience guilty and terrified, he tells God why he's hiding. He says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And again, Adam has been naked since God made him. He's never worn clothes. But now he's aware of his nakedness. Even with these loincloths that he made, there's a change. There's a new self-awareness. There's an awareness that he's, he's defiled, he's polluted, and he's full of shame. He's naked, and really there's no covering that he can find to fix this. He can't fix his guilty soul. The fig leaves didn't do it. And that's because there's nothing between his sin and a holy God. And that's why Adam says, I hid myself. Again, sinners always hide our sin. They always hide their sin. We lie about them. We cover them up. We change the subject. We shred documents. We destroy the evidence. And we get angry and lie and say, how could you even think I would do something like that? So Adam tries to run from God and hide. And again, this is the state of every unconverted person in the world. Think about it. For the first time in his, in his life, Adam is now bothered by a sin nature. That now on the inside, he's stained. He was living in a perfect world, in a world of innocence, but now he's polluted and full of shame. And this brings us to the need of Christmas. Psalm 14 sums it up for us. Psalm 14 in verses 2 and 3. Psalm 14, beginning at verse 2, says, Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who has insight anyone who seeks after God. And so is anyone seeking after God? What's God's answer? Psalm 14, verse 3. They all have turned aside. Altogether, they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. They're hiding from God. And our Lord God knows Adam is guilty and he's full of shame. So now he's going to ask Adam two questions. Two questions to help him see his need to repent. Verse 11. And he, that's Yahweh God, said, Who told you 
that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So who told Adam he was naked? Eve didn't. Satan didn't. Yahweh God hasn't done it yet. Well, the answer is Adam told himself. It was his own guilty conscience that was tormenting him. It was his inborn sense of right and wrong. And so that's the first question asked Adam. And the second, have you eaten from the tree of which I command you not to eat? Again, God knows that what Adam has done. But He's giving Adam a chance to come clean and confess and repent. He wants Adam to see his need here. He wants Adam to see and then take responsibility for what he's done. Because there is no such thing as cheap grace. There needs to be a loving and gracious revealing of our hearts before God. That means we must see ourselves as God sees us. We must see ourselves as sinners. And then this, this is what draws us to the cross. And there can be no cross without first Christmas morning. And so what God is doing here with Adam is He wants him to see his need, which is to repent before a holy God. So what does Adam do? Verse 12, And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. (laughs) And as we read Adam's answer here, (laughs) we would like to think that Adam understands that God knows what's happened. And Adam would think, God knows what I did. I better come clean. God knows where I am and God knows everything I've done. So I I should say yes. Yes, I did it. But what does Adam do? He says, the woman, (laughs) the woman, he's shifting the blame. It was the woman. It was her fault. Don't blame me. And it's funny because it was just not that long ago. Remember when you read the beginning part of Genesis chapter 2, when God presents Eve to Adam, Adam says, wow, this is it. She completes me. And now it's the woman you gave me. So, so, So don't look at me. It's not my fault. And notice Adam just didn't blame Eve here. No, he's really ultimately blaming God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. It's like Adam is saying, you know God, this woman really wasn't my idea. And really God, I didn't have this problem. It was just me and the animals. So it's not my fault. Adam might be the first to play the blame game here, but in reality, we all do it. I mean, we hear all the time that people say that they say it all the time. They deflect it. I can't help it. God made me this way. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I'm the wrong gender. It's not my fault because it's in my gene. It's not my fault. It's my sexual orientation. We live in a world of victims. And there, there is no one ready to stand up and say, it's me, Lord. It's me. And this is where it all started right here. Adam's doing everything he can to repel or deflect any kind of conviction of sin. And this, is, and this is running in our bloodstream. This is passed down from Adam to us. We're, really, we're all really born doing good at doing two things from birth. I think lying and passing the buck. You don't have to teach a four-year-old how to lie or pass the buck. We're all born masters of these. And so here, God's giving Adam a chance to come clean. God knows what's happened. It's like Adam's sin is right in front of his face. It's like on a jumbotron scoreboard. It's flashing at him, flashing in his face, but he's covering his face. He's closing his eyes. He's doing everything he can not to look and see his sin. In fact, he's passing it on to his wife and also to God. So let's think about this. 
God put Adam in a perfect world in paradise, and then God piled goodness on top of goodness for him. And on top of and out of all of all the trees in the garden, really all the trees in the world that he could eat off of, just one he told him not to eat off of. And then he eats from that tree, and then he blames God because God gave him a beautiful wife. And so what does God do? Well, verse 13. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you have done? So we see that God is also holding the woman accountable. Even though Adam is the head of their union, Eve also has to answer for what she's done with her husband. What is this you have done? And how will Eve respond? Well, the rest of verse 13. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, at least Eve says the truth here. (laughs) What she said was true. She was deceived. This word for deceived means to cause to go astray, to seduce, to corrupt. But even though Eve was deceived, she's still accountable. Why? Because she knew God. So when Satan came to her and tried to deceive her, Eve should have said, look, I don't know who you are or what you're trying to do here, but you don't understand God. Because God is good. God cares. And God has given us everything that we could ever need or want for pleasure, delight, satisfaction, and fulfillment. Eve knew Yahweh God. And all Eve knew was goodness. That's all she experienced in her her life, just like Adam. She should have known enough to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to question the kindness of God or His kindness and love towards me. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And again, at least she didn't blame God like Adam did. But there's still no personal responsibility here. The serpent deceived me. It wasn't my fault. And so both Adam and Eve are not taking personal responsibility. And there can be no forgiveness without repentance. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. It tells us in Proverbs 28, 13, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. So first here we have the disobedience. We see here God, Yahweh Himself, questioning both Adam and Eve, and still they won't fess up and repent. And because of Adam's disobedience, now this changes everything for him and Eve and everything. Why? Because God placed Adam as the head, the headship of the entire human race. He was responsible for the entire human race because every person yet to be born will come from him and Eve. And today there are 8 billion people alive in the world and it all started with Adam and Eve. They had children, their children had children, their children had children, and down it went through the centuries until here we are. And so when Adam sinned and disobeyed God, he failed the test, and so now there's a change because when Adam sinned against God, it broke the intimate fellowship that he had with God. And there is now a separation between sinful Adam and holy God. So now something called death comes into the picture. Death now awaits every living thing. But why does every living thing die? Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Paul said in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. God told Adam that if he ate from that tree, he would surely die. Adam was designed to live forever with God. But when he ate, the countdown to death began. God said to Adam, from the ground I formed you, and to the ground you will return. And because Adam was the federal head, the representative of the entire human race, 
So now the entire human race and all of creation has been affected by Adam's sin. And because of Adam's fall, now all of mankind, we're all born separated from God as well. Adam's sin separated us from God. Because by nature we're all born sinners, and so we sin, we obey our Master, which is sin, and this sin affects every part of us. Our body, our soul, emotions, mind, spirit. And so because of this, we're separated from God, and so we're all born dead spiritually, and then we die spiritually. Then we'll all die physically. Death is now a reality for all men and women and animals and in nature, all plants, flowers, everything that's alive dies. In fact, now everything that's created suffers in misery and that's being in a state of decay, pain, and suffering. And as we look, at, as we look here at Adam and Eve, things look pretty bleak for God's creation. But we still have the hope of Christmas. So the first truth we see was the disobedience. The disobedience. Adam had a choice and he disobeyed God. So now he's guilty. He's full of shame. He's frightened. That's the bad news. But here comes the good news. Before the good news, we need the bad news. But what's the good news? Well, what will God do? Well, this brings us to the second truth here, which we'll see, and that is the promise. Verses 14 and 15. The promise. The hope of Christmas. And what we'll see here first is that God is going to pronounce a curse on Satan and then with a wonderful promise. So now after questioning Adam and Eve, God will now turn to the serpent. Verse 14, And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat. So Yahweh God starts out in verse 14 with, and because you have done this. Notice God doesn't even question the serpent. He doesn't ask any questions so it can repent. And also the first word and, or in some of your translations, might be then. It means right after He has questioned Adam and Eve, He immediately turns to the serpent. This is all happening in real time. There isn't days or weeks in between this. God knows what's happened, but He graciously gives both Adam and Eve an opportunity to confess and repent, but they play the blame game. So then God turns to the serpent who's being used by Satan, and now God is speaking directly to him. And what everyone here is finding out the hard way is that God says what He means and means what He says, and that all sin has consequence. And again, there's, there's no question for the serpent here or Satan. He looks right at the serpent and he says, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle. And so because you allowed yourself to be used in this way, you are cursed. And here's something we learn from this. Remember, we saw that everyone in the world is in obedience to one of two things. We all obey one of two things, either sin or Christ. There's only two choices. Well, here's another. Everyone in the world is either blessed or cursed. There are only two categories in the world. There's no in between. And so every unbeliever is cursed. And every believer is blessed. We saw that in Psalm 1. Remember how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The believer is graced and favored by God because they've repented, they're forgiven, and they're saved. It's the opposite of being cursed. Unbelievers are cursed because they have not repented. They'll be judged 
and condemned by God. We know that God is a God of love, but He's also a holy God. Remember, how many sins did it take Adam to bring sin and death into the world? Just one. One sin. We just really don't understand how holy God is. I heard R.C. Sproul say that. And we just don't understand how detestable our sin is to that holy God. And we see it right here. God curses the serpent, and the curse then will come on the animal creation. And the curse will come on Satan. And the curse will come on the woman as she bears children. And the curse will come on, the, on Adam, that he'll now have to work by the, the sweat of his brow. And that's all just from one sin. One sin has condemned the entire human race. That's how holy and just God is. And so things are looking pretty dark here. But we still have verse 15 coming. And we'll see just how loving and merciful God is. We'll see the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas that His grace will win over His justice. But before we can get to the light of the world, we're still here in the blackness of the curse and sin. And so God looks at the serpent and He says, because you have done this, again, cursed are more than you all the cattle. So now the cattle are cursed. And then God says, more than every beast of the field. So now the, be- the beasts of the field are cursed. That's every animal, every bird, every creature is now under the curse. So what that means now is that in the animal world, there's going to be a change. That now there's going to be an order of survival. Survival of the fittest. That one animal will feed on the other and the other will feed on the other and so on and so on. And this was a perfect world of peace and harmony even among the animals. But now because an animal was used for evil, this curse hits the serpent and the animal world pretty hard. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 20, Romans 12.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Hope of Christmas. There's a future time that this curse will be lifted. And so this, this curse on creation is not permanent. Sometime in the future, this curse will be lifted. But now, because we're under the curse, creation is not running the way God intended it to run. So now we have hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, all kinds of suffering. In the last part of verse 14, God says to the serpent, on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And so here God is now moving from addressing the serpent to addressing the one who's using the serpent. He's beginning to address Satan. So because the serpent has allowed Satan to use it, it will now slither around on its belly. Which could mean that it didn't, it, it, it didn't before the curse. It, a, it, the serpent may have had legs. It could have walked upright. We don't know for sure, but, but now it's on its belly. And because snakes don't have legs and they slither, they're, they're kind of creepy the way they move. It's, it's just not like any other creature. And it says, and dust you will eat. Snakes don't eat dust, but this is a metaphor. It's like a word picture of humiliation for both the serpent and Satan. Satan's already been thrown down from heaven to the earth, and now it's like he's being thrown down even further to the ground. It's hard to get any lower than that. But for how long? Well, this is all the days of your life. So both of these, the serpent and the Satan, this isn't temporary. No, this is for the rest of the serpent's life and all serpents to come and the rest of Satan's existence. So for Satan, it's forever. This punishment is forever. So when Satan rebelled and God threw him out of heaven and to the earth, 
He knows that one day God is going to throw him in the lake of fire where he'll be punished for all eternity. So he knows this is what awaits him. But before that day, Satan's going to try to do as much damage to God's order and plan as he can. He's doing everything he can to take as many men and women with him as possible to the lake of fire. And so right now in the world, he's bringing darkness to block out the light. He used, the, he used the serpent to deceive Eve, and today he's using men and women to deceive others. And so he's the power behind the throne of the evil world rulers. He's doing his best to bring in darkness and depravity, to, to, to push God, God's, the, the world rulers to go against God's order. Satan's trying to destroy truth. He's trying to destroy the family. He's trying to destroy law and order. He's trying to destroy God's true church. He's trying to snatch God's words right out of the air before it reaches the ear. He's trying to distract people from hearing the truth. Any false teaching, any false teachers, any false gods are all from Satan. And Satan can even speak through believers. We know this from reading the Scripture. And Peter, remember Peter? Get behind me, Satan. It's amazing to think of how many people have a hard time believing that Satan could have spoken through a serpent when he's really still doing the same thing today, but he's, he's, now he's using people instead of serpents. And he is the master persuader, the master deceiver. And we can thank God that we don't have to defeat the devil because God had a plan all along to take care of him. In verse 15, we see God's plan. And now Yahweh God will speak directly to Satan when we come to the promise and the hope of Christmas. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And notice who it is who puts the enmity here. It's Yahweh God. And the word enmity means hate, hatred, hostility, extreme conflict. It's a bitter fighting between two parties. God says, I will plant this hostility between you, and He's talking to Satan, and the woman, Eve, and everyone that comes from her. When God says between your seed and her, her seed, so it's between those two seeds, we're, we're talking warfare. There will be a battle going on from generation to generation. Your seed, Satan's seed, that's all unbelievers. It's the battle of the centuries between the people of God and the followers of the devil. There's going to be a battle of the children of darkness against the children of light. And we can see it all around us in the world today. We see this battle going on in our world. We see a battle about what's right or what's wrong. The battle between good and evil. And it all began here with the curse. John chapter 8 and verse 44. Our Lord tells us in John chapter 8 and verse 44. He, our Lord Jesus said this to the unbelieving Jewish leaders. You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not, he's not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar, the father of lies. All unbelievers are Satan's seed. Children of the devil. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10. 1 John 3.10 says, But this, the children of God and the children of the devil, are manifested everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God as well as the one who does not love his brother. Ever hear the expression, we're all God's children? Well, verse, verse 15 tells us this is not the case. 
We're all God's creation, but not all God's children. Because of Adam's sin, remember, we're all born separated from God and we're not God's children. We're actually born children of loving ourselves with no desire to please God or obey His Word or do His will. We're enslaved by our sinful desires. We're like puppets on strings and Satan has all the power to rule our actions and our thoughts. And Satan knows what we like and so he tempts us with what we like and he reassures us that we will be happy and satisfied if we remain tied to him. So whether we know it or not, we celebrate sin because we're children of the devil. We're, we're slaves to sin. We can only do what our father or master wants. And so for us to become children of God, there needs to be a transformation in our hearts. We need a Savior. We need rescuing from this evil master. And that's why we have two seeds listed here. God has a plan. The hope of Christmas morning. There are two seeds. One is Satan's seed. The other is the seed of the woman. And it says her seed. And this is unnatural to refer to it this way because the man is the one with the seed. And the word seed can be used both in the plural and the singular. Plural meaning many and singular one. And the plural meaning all of those who will be born from the union of Adam and Eve down through the centuries who are called out of the darkness of sin. It's all the future people born that will be transformed by the Gospel. And then the singular one pointing to the one, the Savior of the world, the promise of Christmas, the Lamb of God. Because the singular meaning to her seed is referring to the virgin birth when the Holy Spirit places the seed in Mary, which is the only time in all of human history that a woman had a seed within her that didn't come from a human man. The seed placed in her was a one-time event, a glorious event. And if we were to actually zoom in on this war, this battle between the children of the devil and the children of God, the main battle is between Satan and our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we, read the, when we read God's Word, we can see it all through Scripture that Satan did everything he could to stop our Lord's birth. All through the Old Testament, he, he's been he tried to wipe out the nation of Israel. Even when, when Christ was born, he used Herod to try to kill all the baby boys to wipe him out. Each time he tried, God intervened to keep His promise. But finally, Satan got the Jewish leaders to have the Romans crucify Christ on the cross. But that was God's plan all along. That's what He came to do. It's a battle, but we know that our Lord Jesus won the battle. He won the war on the cross. But before He could die on that cross, He had to be born in Bethlehem on Christmas morning. And that's the hope of Christmas. So up to this point, it's... <laughs> has been mostly bad news here, but we need to hear the good news, the bad news before we can hear the good news. And now we're to the good news. And this is the good news, the great news. This is phenomenal news because in verse 15, we see the first Gospel message in all the Bible. The promise of the Lamb of God. The last part of verse 15. God says, He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise Him on the heel. Here's God the Father giving prophecy of what's to come. Here's the coming of the Savior. The coming of the Lamb of God. The person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice it all starts with, He shall bruise you on the head. And the He here is our Lord Jesus. And the seed of the woman 
and the you is Satan. So God Himself will be entering into the human race, born of a virgin. God will become flesh and blood. Jesus shall bruise Satan on the head. And this word shall, it means that this is going to happen. This is a done deal. And this word bruise, in the Hebrew it means to crush. To crush on the head. So that's a word picture and that it means that it's a mortal blow. It's a blow that Satan will never recover from. So by going to the cross and perfectly obeying His heavenly Father, Jesus literally crushed Satan. Our Lord took away the power of death that Satan had. It says that in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Hebrews 2.14, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. A crushing blow to death. You know, when the world looks at the cross, what do they usually see? They see defeat. Christ failed. But when we believers look at the cross, what do we see? We see victory. We see pure triumph. Our Lord Jesus was not a victim, but He was a victor at the cross. It all happened on the cross. And before He could go to the cross, we must have Bethlehem. We must have Christmas morning. The hope of Christmas. Christmas morning came. In 1 John 3, in verse 8, it tells us that it was to crush the head of the serpent. 1 John 3, it says, the Son of God was manifested for the purpose to destroy the works of the devil. This war between the devil and our Lord Jesus came to a head. It came to a collision on the cross. And because in his death, Satan was devastated. You know, Satan's still active, but but he received that death blow. And his time is running out. It's just a matter of time. Because of the cross, we're no longer in bondage to sin and to Satan. Satan has now lost the power to chain us to sin. The hope of Christmas morning is that the baby born in Bethlehem came to pay the penalty for sin that we justly deserve. And by going and dying on the cross and being resurrected on the third day, He broke the power of Satan that He had to accuse us before God. We were bound by sin, by chains. But Jesus freed us. That's the hope of Christmas. And the last part of verse 15 tells us about the cross. And you shall bruise Him on the heel. So Satan will bruise our Lord Jesus on the heel. Not on the head, but on the heel. And so at the cross, Jesus will crush the head of the serpent and Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus. And this bruise to the heel, it's not to the head, so our Lord Jesus will recover. It's a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He will come back to life. It's not a final defeat. The cross was a great victory. And because it was, our Lord Jesus will rule and reign forever with His people. And He is alive right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And as we look at what happened here in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, God has to deal with sin. Adam failed the test. He disobeyed God. And then he blamed Eve. And ultimately God for what he did. And so God places a curse on His creation, on Satan, on the woman, and on the man. And things look pretty bleak. Things look bad. But by God's grace, He had a plan. The hope of Christmas. The disobedience, but then the promise. And so as we conclude, as we wrap this up today, 
when we look around at our world today, we can see the effects of Adam's disobedience and his sin. His sin affected everything and it's passed down from generation to generation. All of us here today are part of Adam's line. We're all born with a sin nature. We're all born slaves to sin. We're, we're chained to sin. All we can do is do what our heart desires. And we're all born with a wicked heart as a rock heart. And because we're all born sinners and we sin, we're all born separated from God. But that's the bad news. And we need the bad news before we can hear the good news. And here's the good news. God had a plan of salvation. And it was all wrapped up in a person, the seed of a woman. And the seed in the woman would be a seed like nothing that had ever taken place before. It was a one-time miraculous event where the Holy Spirit places God's seed in a woman, Mary, the virgin birth, Isaiah 7.14, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In, this, in his virgin birth, our Lord Jesus Christ was, in the most literal sense, the Son who was God with us. The hope of Christmas. The good news of great joy. God has made a way for us to be reconciled back with Him. And so here's the question. Are you hiding from God because of your sin? Are you running from God, ashamed and guilty because of your sin? The hope of Christmas is the gift of Christmas. Have you ever given your life to the One who crushed the head of the serpent? The hope of Christmas was that when God wanted to save the world, He sent His Son. When God wanted to show us His grace, He wrapped it in swaddling clothes. When He wanted to crush Satan, it all started in a stable in Bethlehem. The hope of Christmas is the hope of the world. Christmas is God's gift and it's the best gift we could ever have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, as we looked at Your Word today, because of Adam's sin, now we're all born sinners. We're all separated and hiding from You, and that's the bad news. But we also saw the good news of great joy that You had a plan, a plan to save us. Father, we need a Savior. And on that Christmas morning, over 2,000 years ago, Father, You delivered the person of Jesus Christ, the one who will crush the head of the serpent through the cross, that our salvation came as a baby boy born in a manger before there can be the cross. There had to be the manger. And Father, we pray that there's, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as their Savior, that they won't leave here until they do. And Father, we thank you for the hope of Christmas. And we ask all of this in your holy name, Amen. Amen.